Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. I'm Bob, and I want to thank you for listening. Do look around the site. We've got over 3,500 audios featuring some of the church's great preachers, persecution stories from North Korea and other lands, Bible studies on a number of subjects, and a blog. My books are on Amazon.com, and you can contact me at bob.j.faulkner.72 at gmail.com. And I especially would like it if you will visit my new website, hackberryhouseofchosun.com. That's hackberryhouseofchosun, one word, dot com. And there you'll find Hackberry Radio. I'd like you to take a listen to that and get in touch with me. Let me know what you're thinking about Hackberry Radio. Thank you so much. Today we're reading from the Free Grace Broadcaster. That's a quarterly put out by the people at Mount Zion Bible Church in Pensacola, Florida. The topic this quarter, the blood of Christ, the precious blood. And to speak on it today, we read the words of Thomas Brooks. You may recall he was the English nonconformist Puritan preacher, lived from 1608 to 1680. The Covenant of Redemption and Christ's blood, Thomas Brooks. We may present uh, that compact uh, covenant and agreement that was solemnly made between God and Christ, touching the whole business of man's salvation or redemption. We may present to our understanding in this form. God the Father saith to Christ, the mediator, I look upon Adam and his posterity as a degenerate seed, a generation of vipers, of apostates and backsliders, yea, traitors and rebels, liable to all temporal, spiritual, and eternal judgments. Yet I cannot find in my heart to damn them all. Mine heart is turned within me. My repentings are kindled together. I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger, for I am God and not man. That's Hosea 11. And therefore I have determined to show mercy upon many millions of them, and save them from wrath to come, and to bring them to glory. But this I must do with a salvo to my law, justice, and honor. If therefore thou wilt undertake for them, and become a curse for their sakes, and to make satisfaction to my justice for their sins, I will give them unto thee, to take care of them, and to bring them up to my kingdom for the manifestation of the glory of my grace. And he continues this somewhat imaginary conversation, but in reality, Well, saith Christ, I am content. I will do all thou requirest with all my heart. And so the agreement is made between thee and me. Well, this may be gathered uh, from the scriptures. Uh, Christ, the Son, speaks in both places. In the first, he publisheth the decree of ordinance of heaven touching himself, and bringeth in the Father, installing the Son into the priesthood or office of mediator. For so the apostle applieth that text, Thou art my Son, that's in Hebrews 5.5, and avoucheth this covenant and agreement in the two main parts of it. First, the condition that he will have performed on Christ's part as mediator, or what Christ must do as mediator. He must ask of God, that is, not only verbally, by prayers and supplications, beg mercy, pardon, righteousness, and salvation for poor lost sinners, but also really by fulfilling the righteousness of the law, both in doing and suffering, and so by satisfaction and merit, 
purchasing acceptation for them at his hands. The Father engaged so, and so to Christ, and Christ reciprocally engaged so, and so to the Father. A considerable part of the terms and matter of which covenant is set down. Isaiah 53, When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. The Father covenants to do thus and thus for fallen man, but first, in order thereunto, the Son must covenant to take man's nature. Therein to satisfy offended justice, to repair and vindicate his father's honor. Well, he submits, assents to these demands, indents and covenants to make all good. This was the substance of the covenant of redemption. But secondly, let us consider the promise that the father engageth to perform on his part. The son must ask and the father will give. He will give him the heathen for his inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for his possession. This is an allusion to great princes. When they would show great affection to their favorites, they bid them ask what they will, as Ahasuerus did, and as Herod did. That is, he shall both be the Lord's salvation to the ends of the earth, and have all power given him in heaven and earth, so that every knee shall bow to him, and every tongue shall confess him to be Lord." In the other text before mentioned, Christ declares his compliance to the agreement and his subscribing the covenant on his part when he came into the world, as the apostle explains it. Mine ear, saith he, hast thou opened, lo, I come to do thy will, Psalm 40. As if he had said, O Father, thou dost engage me to be thy servant in this great work of saving sinners. Lo, I come to do the work. I hear covenant and agree to yield up myself to thy disposing and to serve thee forever. But for a more clear, distinct, and full opening of the covenant of redemption, or that blessed compact between God the Father and Jesus Christ, which is a matter of grand importance to all our souls, and considering that it is a point that I have never yet treated of in pulpit or press, I shall therefore take the liberty at this time to open myself as clearly and as fully as I can. And therefore thus, question, if you ask me what this covenant of redemption is, I answer in general that a covenant is a mutual agreement between parties upon articles or propositions on both sides so that each party is tied and bound to perform his own conditions. This description holds the general nature of a covenant and is common to all covenants, public and private, divine or human. But secondly, and more particularly, I answer that the covenant of redemption is that federal transaction, when he says federal, it's a covenant agreement between the Father and the Son, that the Son would be the covenantal or representative head for all who believe on him. The federal transaction or mutual stipulation that is an agreement between two people to do something that was between God and Christ from everlasting for the accomplishment of the work of our redemption by the mediation of Jesus Christ to the eternal honor and unspeakable praise of the glorious grace of God. Or if you please, take it in another form of words thus. It is a compact, bargain, and agreement between God the Father and God the Son, the designed mediator, concerning the conversion 
sanctification and salvation of the elect through the death, satisfaction, and obedience of Jesus Christ, which in due time was to be given to the Father. But for the making good the definition I have laid down, I must take leave to tell you that there are many choice scriptures that give clear intimation of such a federal transaction between God the Father and Jesus Christ to the recovery and everlasting happiness and salvation of his elect. That the Holy Spirit opens and expounds the covenant of redemption, bringing in the Father and the Son as conferring and agreeing together about the terms of it. The first thing agreed on between them is the price. The price that God the Father stands upon or insists upon is blood, and not the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of his Son, which was the best, the purest, and the noblest blood that ever ran in veins. Now, Christ, to bring about the redemption of fallen man, is willing to come up to the demands of his Father and to lay down his blood. The Scripture calls the blood of Christ precious blood. Oh, the virtue in it, the value of it. Through this Red Sea we must pass to heaven. Christ's blood is heaven's key. Christ's blood is precious blood in regard of the dignity of his person. It is the blood of God himself. It is the blood of that person who is very God as well as very man. Christ's blood was noble blood and therefore precious. He came of the race of kings, as touching his manhood, but being withal the the Son of God renders his nobility matchless and peerless. It was Pharaoh's brag that he was the son of ancient kings. Isaiah 19. Who can lay claim to this more than Christ? Who can challenge this honor before him? He is the son of the most ancient king in the world. He was begotten a king from all eternity, and the blood of good kings is precious. Thou art worth ten thousand of us, said David's subjects to him, and therefore they would not suffer him to hazard himself in the battle. The nobleness of his person did set a high rate upon his blood. And whom doth this argument more commend unto us than Christ? And the blood of Christ is precious blood in regard of the virtues of it. By this blood, God and man are reconciled. By this blood, the chosen of God are redeemed. It was an excellent saying of Leo. That's Leo the Great, the Bishop of Rome. He said, The effusion of Christ's blood is so rich and available that if the whole multitude of captive sinners would believe in their Redeemer, not one of them should be detained in the tyrant's chains. This precious blood justifies our persons in the sight of God. It frees us from the guilt of sin. It frees us from the reign and dominion of sin. And it frees us from the punishments that are due to sin. It saves us from the wrath to come. Now, were not Christ's blood of infinite value and virtue? It could never have produced such glorious effects. The blood of Christ is precious beyond all account. And yet our Lord Jesus did not think it too dear a price to pay down for his saints. God the Father would be satisfied with no other price. And therefore God the Son comes up to his Father's price that our redemption might be sure. But observe that God rejects all ways of satisfaction by men. Could men make as many prayers as there be stars in heaven and drops in the sea, 
And could they weep as much blood as there is water in the ocean? And should they give all their goods to the poor and their bodies to be burned as some have done? Yet all this would not satisfy for the least sin, not for an idle word, not for a vain thought. Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, Hebrews 10.5, that is, thou wilt not accept of them for an expiation and satisfaction for sin, as the Jews imagined. The apostle shows the impotency and the insufficiency of legal sacrifices by God's rejecting of them. The things here set down not to be regarded by God as sacrifices, offerings, burnt offerings, sacrifices for sin, together with other legal ordinances comprised under them, do demonstrate that God regards none of those things in a way of satisfaction. They are no current price. They are no such pay that will be accepted in the court of heaven. Remission of sins could never be obtained by sacrifices and offerings, prayers, tears, humblings, meltings, watchings, fastings, penances, pilgrimages. Remission of sins cost Christ dear, though it cost us nothing. Remission of sins drops down from God to us through Christ's wounds and swims to us in Christ's blood. It was well said by one of the ancients, Thus I do not have the wherewithal to enable me to glory in my own works. I do not have the wherewithal to boast of myself, and so I will glory in Christ. I will not glory because I have been redeemed. I will not glory because I am free of sins, but because sins have been forgiven me. I will not glory because I am profitable or because anyone is profitable to me, but because Christ is an advocate on my behalf with the Father, because the blood of Christ has been poured out on my behalf. Certainly, the popish doctrine of man's own satisfaction in part for his sins is most derogatory to the blood and to the plenary and complete satisfaction of Jesus Christ. But thirdly, observe that nothing below the obedience and suffering of Christ our mediator could satisfy divine justice. A body thou hast prepared for me, Hebrews 10.5. Christ having declared what his Father delighteth not in, further showeth affirmatively what it was wherein he rested well pleased in these words, but a body thou hast prepared me. In this phrase, Christ is brought in, speaking to his Father. By body is meant the human nature of Christ. Body is, is put for the whole human nature, consisting of body and soul. The body was the visible part of Christ's human nature. A body is fit for a sacrifice, fit to be slain, fit to have blood shed out of it, fit to be offered up, fit to be made a price and a ransom for our sins, and fit to answer the types under the law. Pertinently, therefore, to this purpose it is said of Christ, He Himself bare our sins in His own body. And those infirmities wherein he was made like unto us were most conspicuously evidenced in his body. And hereby Christ was manifested to be a true man. He had a body like ours, a body subject to manifold infirmities, yea, to death itself. The body that Christ had is said to be prepared by God. God fitted his son's body to be joined with the deity and to be an expiatory sacrifice for sin. The word prepared implies that God the Father ordained, formed, and made fit and able Christ's human nature to undergo 
suffer, and fulfill that for which he was sent into the world. God the Father is here said to have prepared Christ a body because Christ, having received of his Father the human nature out of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Ghost, here gives up the same unto the service of his Father, to do, to suffer, to die, that he might be a sacrifice of expiation for our sins. Now saith God, I have made a covenant with him. So then there is a covenant that God the Father hath made with Christ the Mediator. This covenant the Father engages to the Son shall stand fast. There shall be no cancelling or disannulling of it. God the Father hath not only made a covenant of grace with the saints in Christ, but he has also made a covenant of redemption, as we call it for distinction's sake, with Jesus Christ himself. My covenant shall stand fast with him, that is, with Christ, as we have fully and clearly demonstrated. But in Zechariah 9.11, As for thee also, by the blood of thy covenant, or whose covenant is by blood, I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit wherein is no water. Now here God the Father speaks to Christ with relation to some covenant between them both. And what covenant can that be but the covenant of redemption? All the temporal, spiritual, and eternal deliverances that we enjoy swim to us through the blood of that covenant that is passed between the Father and the Son. By virtue of the same blood of the covenant, wherewith we are reconciled, justified, and saved, were the Jews delivered from their Babylonish captivity. The Babylonish captivity, thraldom and dispersion was that waterless pit, that dirty dungeon, that uncomfortable and forlorn condition out of which they were delivered by virtue of the blood of the covenant, that is, by virtue of the blood of Christ, figured by the blood that was sprinkled upon the people and by virtue of the covenant confirmed thereby. Look, as all the choice mercies, the high favors, the noble blessings that the saints enjoy are purchased by the blood of Christ, so they are made sure to the saints by the same blood, by the blood of thy covenant. I have sent forth thy prisoners. Whatever desperate distresses and deadly dangers the people of God may fall into, yet they are prisoners of hope and may look for deliverance by the blood of the covenant. It is most clear and evident that there was a covenant, a compact, and an agreement between God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ concerning the work of our redemption. Christ being called a surety of a better testament shows that there was a covenant between God the Father and Him, as there is between a creditor and a surety. Christ gave bonds, as it were, to God the Father and paid down the debt upon the nail, that breaches might be made up between God and us, restoring us to divine favor forever. But for the further clearing up of the covenant of redemption, I shall in the second place lay down these propositions. And the first is this, that the covenant of redemption differs from the covenant of grace. It is true that the covenant of redemption is a covenant of grace, but it is not properly that covenant of grace which the scripture holds out in opposition to the covenant of works, which I shall thus evidence. Number one, the covenant of redemption differs from the covenant of grace regarding the federates. In the covenant of redemption, it is God the Father and Jesus Christ that mutually covenant. But in the covenant of grace, the confederates are God and believers. 
Number two, in the covenant of redemption, God the Father requires of Jesus Christ that he should suffer, shed his blood, die, and make himself an offering for our sins. But in the covenant of grace, God requires of us that we should believe and embrace the Lord Jesus. Number three, in the covenant of redemption, God the Father has made many great, precious, and glorious promises to Jesus Christ. Sit on my right hand, and I will make your enemies your footstool. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Ask of me, and I will give you the heathen for your inheritance in the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. But in the covenant of grace, God promises grace and glory to us, holiness and happiness, both the upper and the lower springs, as it were. Number four, the covenant of redemption between God and Christ secures the covenant of grace between God and believers. For what God promises to us, he promised to Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. Therefore, if God the Father should not make good his promises to his saints, he would not make good his promises to his dearest son, which for any to imagine would be high blasphemy. God will be sure to keep touch with Jesus Christ, and therefore we may rest fully assured that he will not fail to keep touch that is carefully perform his agreement with us. Number five, the covenant of redemption is the very basis or bottom or foundation of the covenant of grace. God made a covenant with Christ, the spiritual David, that he might make a covenant with all his elect in him. He made this agreement with Christ as the head, And on this is reared up the whole frame of precious promises comprised in the covenant of grace as a goodly building upon a sure foundation. Now that piece is from the complete works of Thomas Brooks. It's in the public domain, which means I'm free to share it with you. And anything that you receive from Free Grace Broadcaster that I do, I'm allowed to to share with you. I ask them permission and they basically let me know that I didn't need it. These are public domain works. Next time we talk about the blood, we'll be visiting with Octavius Winslow, speaking of the blood of the great high priest. Thank you so much again for being here. And by the way, if you'd like a copy of the Free Grace Broadcaster sent to you every three months free, just send an email to them at chapel at mountzion.org. Chapel at mountzion.org. It's all free. And if you'll ask for a little catalog from them or a list or whatever, they will send you a list of other free things, many other. Uh, you're going to be blessed by the, the people at uh, the Free Grace Broadcaster. Bless you. Talk again soon. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun. Bye-bye.